Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the American dream. Meet the Windsors and the Lominicks. All children of immigrants come to America to pursue a better life. Claude Windsor, a farmer, Robert Lominick, a blacksmith, their lovely wives, keepers of the house, and bearers of their children. Thank you. The Windsors had six children, including a daughter, Dorothy. The Lominicks had two, Curtis and Robert Earl. Robert and Dorothy grew up in the same small town of Lebanon, Missouri. They graduated high school, which was a big deal. They fell in love and got married. Robert Earl became Bob, and Bob became an accountant. They bought a beautiful home in St. Louis, had three wonderful sons, and lived the suburban dream while their young boys went to school to acquire the skills and character to pursue their dreams. Okay, stop the music. Check out the kid in the suit and tie. He's right in the middle. His name is Craig, and he's wearing a full-blown suit, horn-rimmed glasses, white socks with the dress shoes. He either became an accountant who wore that exact suit the rest of his life or a serial killer, one or the other. (laughs) Bob and Dorothy worked hard. They provided the good life for their children. They saved up, put all three boys through university to better their chances at the dream, and retired in South Florida where they and their fellow captains of industry lived out the rest of their years with dignity. Okay, so... The American dream. By the way, uh, I am not going to pick on the American dream today. Uh, Thank you for being here, even though Tom's not here. We never tell you when Tom's not going to be here. Um, So, ha! Um, If if you've got the courage to just get up and walk out, I will respect you. So, um, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, that thing that just happened never happens. So, if you don't like it and felt like it was irreverent, don't blame Tom, okay? Um, The American dream. I'm not here to pick on it, by the way. I actually, I actually believe that there are some very vital biblical parts of the American dream, which we'll talk about. But that was kind of a conception of the American dream that played itself out in the life of my family. You saw there my grandparents and my parents and the way that uh, they came up. Um, you know, it, we just had Veterans Day. Since the American Revolution, over 1.3 million Americans have died at war. 1.3 million people died at war. 600,000 of them died within our own borders during the Civil War. 400,000, World War II. Over 100,000, World War I. Vietnam, 58,000. Korea, 35,000. Revolutionary War, 25,000. They died in defense of what came to be called or known as the American Dream. James Truslow Adams uh, coined the phrase, actually. It it was really written in a book uh, in 1931. He said this, The American dream is a dream in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. That sounds pretty good. Let me read it again. A dream in which each man and each woman shall be able to attain to the fullest stature of which they are innately capable and be recognized by others for what they are. Now, we had a little fun with the American dream there, but that's a pretty profound statement. You know, the mechanics of the American dream, which is actually just a dream that many nations and many peoples have shared throughout history, um, the mechanics of the American dream are pretty simple. kind of goes like this. Uh, If we all work hard 
emphasis on all, right, democracy, if we all work hard, play fair, respect each other, and take responsibility for ourselves, this system of governance and social, socioeconomic development will allow us to prosper beyond our wildest imaginations. The more of us who don't do these things, the less prosperous we will all be, but we're all in it together. That's the American dream. You know, I don't know if you caught it, but a few weeks ago, Tom dropped that bomb. He just kind of threw that American dream in there, and he said, he said something to the effect of, we need to rethink, re-envision, re-understand the American dream. Well, you know, the American dream, like I said, has been fought and died for by over a million people. The American dream has led to the most prosperous nation in the world, and it's not just because we're a bunch of greedy jerks. It's because at the roots, at the foundation of uh, uh, this country was this principle That if we all worked hard, if we all played fair, if we respected each other, if we took responsibility for ourselves, this system of democratic governance and socioeconomic development would allow us to prosper beyond our wildest imagination, and it absolutely came true. It absolutely did. But right now, and let me take that right now and stick it like about every 12 or 15 years, okay? Right now... That dream is sort of in an upheaval because what I just laid out there was kind of the, the physical manifestation of maybe how a lot of people see the dream. Um, and that dream has kind of come into upheaval. You know, I remember when I was a kid, the thing that we were extremely patriotic family. I mean, every 4th of July, every veteran, every holiday, we remembered veterans. I had uncles in, 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 the, in the military that had been decorated veterans, great uncles, you know, everybody. Um, very patriotic family. But one of the things I remember about all of that was wrapped, being wrapped in the blanket of safety and security. It was almost as though there was a, a high wall around the entire nation of the United States, and we would go out from here to fight for democracy around the world and to champion truth around the world, but here we were safe until two planes flew through the wall and into two structures that represented our prosperity. And then we, we, we didn't feel so safe anymore. Well, another thing it was about was it was a very reasonable expectation that if you did what my parents did, and if you, if you were honest and hardworking and you went to school, you got your education, you went to college, you, you could go out and you could get a good job, and, and if you worked hard and you were honest, you'd get paid a fair wage for that job. And the better the, better you, the, better the worker, the more money you could make, and it was sort of like the world was your oyster. So there was this sense that wealth and prosperity was a part of this dream, and it was an honestly won and noble uh, wealth and prosperity. But here we are, great recession. Great recession we're in right now, right? My dad was born in the, right before the Great Depression, my mom and dad. When they were born, uh, short, right after the Great Depression came along, I don't know, they were eight or nine years old, when the Great Depression happened, um, they would uh, sit uh, every night, they would close their curtains, All everybody in the neighborhood, and I've told you this before, forgive me, but everybody in the neighborhood would close their curtains and the people who had work would make a, an extra meal. They'd double their dinner and they would take it out before 6 p.m. and they would put it on the street corner or they'd put it in front of their house on the sidewalk um, and then they'd all go in and they'd all shut their doors and they'd all put the blinds down so that nobody knew who had to go out and take the food. Not, not, not a great depression yet, I don't guess, but because um, that's pretty serious. Um, but the Great Recession saw an ad the other day. Some of you will laugh at this. It was for apartments. Maybe you've seen it. It said, everybody knows that, the, that renting is the new American dream. 
Well, renting was the thing that was sparked to, supposed to be an obstacle to the American dream. Remember that? Everybody had a right to own a home, so we invented the 30-year mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. But now we're rethinking, we're re-envisioning, and then this term is what comes out. What's the new normal? Normal for my dad was putting the food out on the street corner and having one pair of shoes forever and all those kinds of things. And, they did, and he'll, he would tell you they didn't consider themselves poor. It was just the normal. But then we invented this new normal, and every so often we invent new, new normals. But the question is this. How much can we produce with this model? How much can we consume? How many people can be added? Do you know that within 75 years, there's supposed to be 600 million people in this country? Right now, there's 300 million. How much more can we produce? How much can we consume? How different can our, and diverse can all of our individual values be without doing vandalism to this we're-in-it-together dream? What's the new normal going to be in this world and in this life? Well, I, I'm, I'm laying all this out there because maybe you're thinking through some of this right now. Maybe you're feeling very blessed and fortunate to be still living um, the old normal. But you've begun to look around and you've begun to see friends and family struggling in this. You know, I remember not very long ago, I didn't know a single person ever that I'd ever known who'd had their house foreclosed on ever. And now, it seems like half the people I know. Something, something is, is, is very challenging about this normal that we live in now, and we all know that there's going to be a new one. Well, listen, for the last five weeks, Tom has been talking about what the new normal looks like for a Christian. Because here's the deal. No matter what period of history you're in, I don't care if it's thousands of years ago, I don't care if you're a caveman, I don't care if you're in Rome, I don't care what your your social strata is, your net worth, your culture, your power, I don't care what it is. When you become a Christian, you get a new normal. And it is not new like, oh, we used to put the food out on the curb and now we don't have to do that. I mean, that's seems extremely significant, but really that's a pretty small deal compared to the kind of radical new normal that you get when you say, it's not about me anymore, it's about Jesus. When you say, everything that I have is now not mine, it is his, even my life. And the fact is, what Tom has been doing is he's been painting a picture that Jesus painted and that Peter painted and that Paul painted of a new normal. And nobody bought it until Jesus died. Jesus preached all this before he died. And they thought he was a little crazy. People left him. Other people kept silent. We're going to see that in a minute. But Jesus painted this picture of the new normal uh, that Tom has been unfolding for us. And we saw that, that the prophecy of the scriptures is not for some distant future, uh, weird sort of crystal ball-y tarot card, figure out when, hit, when Jesus is going to come back. God didn't tell his son, but he whispered, hey, wink, wink. Don't tell Jesus, but if you just add all these things together, you're going to know when he's coming back. So just go hide. And come out when you, when you hear the trumpet. Well, that wasn't the message. What, what, the, 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 the message that Tom painted for us, the new normal that Tom created, that demonstrated for us was this. He said, we see first that God is the king of all that is, okay? Uh, John sees him sitting on his throne. And what's the message there? He's got eyes everywhere. He can see everything. He's in control of everything. Nothing is happening outside of his sovereign control. The scroll, which is his battle plan, is in his right hand. That's his hand of justice and wisdom and truth. 
So God is in charge of all things, no matter what's happening to you right now in this moment, no matter how meaningless it seems, there's a God and he's in charge. Second thing we saw is that God has revealed this battle plan to fix the broken world. The stuff you see right now that's broken and doesn't make sense is going to get fixed. You know, Christianity cannot offer a rational ironclad answer to why people suffer. Christianity cannot help you understand beyond logical, to logical certainty why you're going through what you're going through if you're going through something. But I got news for you. Neither can anyone else. There is no religion. There is no philosophy. There is no business model. There is no... Atheism cannot explain all of this with rational certainty. But what we've seen in these prophecies is that what God does say is, who's going to do something about it? You can't deny my existence. It's written in the stars. You know I exist. You're intelligent. You have the ability to conceive of me. You either have to believe that that nothing created everything, that something created everything, or that someone created everything, and you can conceive of that someone. So you got to believe I exist. I'm in control of all things if I created it all. And there's a battle plan to fix this broken world. The next thing is that he made a a way to execute that battle plan. And it wasn't a, a way or a set of rules. It was a person and it was Jesus. He sent Jesus, the only one worthy, to be able to restore his creation to perfect union with him. So he sent Jesus. Then we saw that history reveals a pattern, and it goes like this. God creates. Tell me if this doesn't sound like it makes sense. God creates. Man corrupts. God brings judgment but saves a remnant. Through the remnant, God makes all things new. And we see this pattern living itself out all the time, not just in the global scale, but in our own individual lives. Something good gets corrupted. Judgment and consequences come against that, but there's hope. And from that hope... That thing is fixed, and we live in this pattern. We're playing it out. And finally, Jesus will return to break the cycle. It's a cycle that isn't meant to last forever. And Jesus will return to break the cycle. So we ended in Peter's second letter to the Christians of Asia Minor. Here's the deal. Peter the apostle uh, Peter was one of the 12. He was the cocky one that always, you know, stuck his foot in his mouth. It, I, I kind of think I would have been like Peter. Uh, he was always saying things he hadn't thought through, you know, and uh, it was loud. And so, so Peter comes to Christ, authentic faith in Christ. This is now decades after he's been with Jesus. He writes these two letters, first and second Peter, to the Christians in Asia Minor, which was basically like the Christians in all the civilized world. Think of it that way. It was kind of like his blog, seriously. It was like his blog, okay? So he writes this letter when some dreams of theirs were in upheaval, okay? The Roman Empire was sort of at its peak. It had done all of its conquering, more or less, and it was starting to get cumbersome, okay? It was starting to try and deal with all of this expanse. It's like they'd expanded too far, and now they're trying to send enough soldiers here and deal with enough politics there, and they're trying to put out all these fires. And in the meantime, they've got the Israelites in Jerusalem who believe that they have a divine right to this city and really that they are the rightful and just rulers of the world. And so Peter is writing into this. And by the way, he was a fisherman, okay? He was like a, just a blue-collar, uneducated guy, fished. <laughs> he met Jesus, 
Jesus said, hey, you want to be a fisher of men? He said, okay. And he threw his net down and he followed Jesus. So he just left it. And he went and followed Jesus uh, and sort of followed him through his three-year ministry, right? Well, um, so he wrote in this time. And let me tell you something else interesting about when Peter wrote this letter. Remember what John, uh, Tom said about how important it is to understand that John's vision in Revelation was written before the fall of the temple in 70 AD because that made a lot of these prophecies make sense that he was talking about the Jewish temple that had become obsolete because of Christ and was going to it was going to be destroyed. Well, guess when Paul or Peter was writing his letters? 64 to 66 AD. In the middle of the upheaval, right when John would have gotten his vision. Gee, maybe they were observing, witnessing, thinking about, talking about the same things. So that's when he wrote. It was like his blog. It was like his social networking site. Okay? But it wasn't a web address. It was in Rome. Okay? Now he says he wrote from Babylon, but we understand Babylon, again, through the prophetic teaching that Tom's done, we understand Babylon is not, the, there, was a, there was a Babylon, but it was like out in Mesopotamia and hardly anybody lived there. And it was not where you wrote your blog. Okay? It wasn't your, it wasn't home base. Rome was. And what was Rome? It was the Babylon of the day. It was the place where immorality reigned and you know, abuse of power and all that. So he writes this letter from Rome and he sends it out uh, to all of the, all the Christians who at this point we know are being persecuted and all sort of things like that. So he, he sends out this letter, but I want you to look at something. Peter tells a story at the beginning of this second letter. For Second uh, Peter 1, 17 and 18, he says, he says this. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now this was not when Jesus was baptized and the dove came down. I'll tell you about it in a minute. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Does anybody know what he's referring to? I will be really impressed. Anyone? The transfiguration. All right, so you're like, what? Here's the transfiguration. There was a time in Jesus' ministry when he took his, his, tight, his tightest three, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain, Mount um, Hermon, we think, which is Tom and the, and the group that are in Israel right now were just up on that mountain a few days ago. And we think this is where the transfiguration happened. And what happened on this mountain is he takes his disciples up there, the, the big three, Peter, James, and John, and he is transfigured. Okay? You know, the Bible says that Jesus wasn't much to look at. He was just kind of an average looking guy. He was a carpenter. Maybe he's kind of small. He was able to slip away in crowds. Well, what happens is they go with this, this, this teacher up to the mountain and all of a sudden his face glorifies and brightens and his clothes turn to white and, and he just becomes this incredible mystical uh, being that they'd never seen before. And then next to him are Elijah and Moses, these prophets that like, that they thought were the, the, the big deal. And they see them and then this cloud overwhelms them and these disciples are terrified. Okay? Now you'd think they'd be like, yeah, this is awesome. They weren't. Let me tell you, let me read you their response. Let me tell you what happened. Okay? They go up on this holy mountain and uh, they go through all this and then here's what, here's what happens. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come out, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. This is up on the mountain during the transfiguration. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. 
Peter, James, and John, the big three, the closest ones, right? So Peter's like, uh, so Jesus is like, I'm going to take the A team up to the mountain and I'm going to let them, I'm going to let them peek behind the curtain and see what's really going on, right? So he takes them up there and he shows them his glory. And maybe you're thinking they're going to go, yes, we knew it was true. Let's go down and, you know, kick some spiritual booty. I don't know. Here's what they do. They go, that was crazy. And they kind of, I won't say anything. You're not saying anything. You think we should say anything? I'm not saying nothing. You don't, don't drive us out of town. And they left and they did. That was great, Jesus. Got to go. And they just went down and they never mentioned it again. So here we are decades later at the height of persecution. Christians are getting killed right and left. Nero used to take them and stick them on spears and dip, dip them in oil and light them, to, you know, light them on fire to light his parties. And he's in the, at the height of this persecution. It's been years since Jesus has been around. And here he is confidently proclaiming that he was there personally when this event happened, saw Jesus in his glory, and he's putting it in his blog that's going to go out all over the world. So what happened? Why the change? Well, you need to ask yourself What happened in me? I'm going to read words to you that Jesus said to the disciples eight days before he showed them his glory. And I want you to hear them as though he is saying them to you and to me. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For whatever, uh, for what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Eight days later, he takes them up on the mountain, shows them his glory. And what are they? Ashamed. Now, he did that to make a point. Because later he knew they'd see him in his glory. And because the Holy Spirit had worked in their life, he knew that, that they would get it. So he makes this challenge and it doesn't sink in. And they go up on this hill and they see his glory and they keep it to themselves until the day he dies. But something happens. Something changes. I'm going to tell you what happens. Peter has discovered a new normal. And here's how he did it. He had seen Jesus alive, and then he had seen Jesus dead, and then he had seen him alive again. When somebody tells you, if somebody were to come to you, if I were to get up here today and I were to say, give everything to me, give everything to the poor, give everything away and trust me and, and you know, carry your cross daily for me, You'd have some questions, wouldn't you? No matter how wonderful a person you thought I was, or, or no matter how wise you thought, or anything like that, no matter if you thought you'd seen some miracles, it wouldn't matter. But what if you saw me alive, and then dead, and then alive again? Everything that I had said before that would become validated, wouldn't it? And you see, Jesus prophesied all these things Tom's been teaching about to these people who didn't get it. 
because they had not yet seen Jesus risen. You want to know when the moment of salvation is in your life? It's when you see Jesus risen. And you believe that it really happened. And that's what happened here. He had just learned what you and I now know about this world, what it's worth and where it's headed and why we're in it. He had been taught that and then he saw Jesus and it all made sense. And he burned the ships. You know that story, the explorer came over here with a group of sailors. They got here, he burned the ships. Why did he do that? Because there was no turning back. Well, Peter burned the ships. And so I read this and I ask myself, have I burned the ships? Because when I do, these incredible things happen, these incredible consequences happen. So last week we ended with, well, what next? What do we do now? What's, who cares? Who cares about all this? What are the practical implications? Well, in Scripture, whenever you see a therefore, okay, they're getting ready to tell you what the therefore was there for, right? That was the thing they used to say when I was a kid. What's the therefore, therefore? Um, did they say that at Knox ever? That's because it's cheesy and stupid. <laughs> So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the therefore. Okay, you know all this. You know that there's a God. He's in control of everything, that that, uh, he has a plan to to fix that which is broken, that he sent his son Jesus, who's the only one worthy because of the sacrifice that he's made and because of his conquering of death and because of his divinity, and that Jesus is using us to accomplish this battle plan, not a battle plan against people, but for people. He's using you and me every day, and and then, so Peter's going to go on, and he's going to explain the therefore. So let's take a look at it. It's in 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 14, right after where Tom left off last week. Therefore, Peter says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by, look for these things. He's referring to those prophecies that, that Tom unfolded last week. Since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. So the idea is that Jesus is really coming back, okay? So since you know he's coming back and you know the signs and you're going to be looking for his return, make sure you're ready when he gets here. And and how do you do that? First thing, it matters how you live. It matters how you live. If you really believe that Jesus will return and that he's only being patient, which we'll get to in a minute... If you really believe that Jesus is really who he said he was, if you've had that moment where you've seen him alive and then dead and then alive again, then it matters how you live. You know, I, I've struggled in my life with addiction. And when I used to go and, and, and act out in my addiction, one of those little voices way, way in the back is, oh, could you imagine? Could you imagine if Jesus blew his trumpet right now? You know, and because of this great prosperity in which we live, because of the lack of persecution that any of us has suffered, because of all these things, because we can come to Christ without fear of persecution, basically, meaningful, real, serious, kill you kind of persecution, it, it's, it's so easy to discount the way I live my life. When I know what he says, and I, and I know, I mean, how many times have I come to take the Lord's table and I know that I'm engaged in an, an act, a willful pattern of sin for which I need to repent. And I walk up and I take the juice and I take the cracker because I, 
I don't want anybody to know, or even worse, I just don't even think about it. Let me tell you something. When you get freed from these besetting sins in your life, guess what it brings you? It's the word in that verse. Peace. Peace from freedom, from fear of getting caught. Freedom from how you'll feel when you're finished. Freedom from the disconnection between you and your God. Freedom from the broken relationships that you're risking. Freedom from, from all of these things. Freedom from prison. Freedom from physical harm. It's, it's a peace that's found in this freedom when you live out the wisdom of, of God. Because life works the way he said it works. So he says, it matters how you live. Live in peace, spotless and blameless. And that's not peace as in just be a peaceful, nice guy. It's when you're spotless and blameless, you have peace. Your life is troubled. Maybe that's why. Verse 15, he says this, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Well, how come Jesus hasn't come back yet? This came up back in that day. How come Jesus hasn't come back yet? And several of the apostles, several of the writers of Scripture addressed it. And they talked about God's patience, not desiring that anyone should perish, right? That all should have eternal life. Jesus would not return until all, all who were justly called to salvation would be saved. So here's the message here. God's patience is for the lost, God's patience is his active self-restraint. Madeline Murray O'Hare, the famous atheist, got prayer kicked out of uh, public schools. Story goes, I don't know if it's true, it was told by her son who later became a Christian when he was a little boy driving in a thunderstorm, horrible lightning storm, I think in Texas. And if you've been to Texas, you know they have some humdingers of a lightning storm. Driving in the middle of this torrential rain, whips off the road, angrily gets out of the car, makes him get out with her, shakes her fist into the heavens and says, God, if you're real, strike me dead. Nothing happens. Gets back in the car, soaking wet, shakes the water off, says, see, son, there is no God. Either there's no God or, or God is patient. Her son came to Christ later in his life. God's patience is for the lost, and you are his chosen mechanism. You and I are his chosen mechanism to see that happen. We have a, a community group in our church that uh, one of the people in that community group went to get his hair cut every, uh, how often you do that, and his, the guy who, who did his hair um, over time, eventually, through that relationship, came to Christ. And when he came to Christ, he became very convicted about a life uh, style that he was living, about uh, uh, the person that he was uh, staying with, he was living with. And he uh, immediately repented of that and went to the person and said, I love you, but I can't continue in this relationship. And he moved out. This was within a week of coming to Christ. A week later, his partner was diagnosed, uh, who, who, had, who had AIDS, who had HIV, was diagnosed with spinal cancer and was paralyzed. And a few months later, he was dead. And so my friend went to the funeral, which was at a church up in Wilton Manors, and uh, didn't know any of this part of the story. 
At this funeral, the minister told the story of these two men's relationship and explained that just in the last few weeks, Thomas had led his friend to Christ. And they rejoiced that they knew that both of them would be in heaven. God's doing that all the time. You don't know. You don't know what time someone is on. Remember that thing we did in Share Life, the, the clock? You don't know where somebody is on their spiritual journey. Are they an indifferent atheist? It's one in the morning for them. Or is it the 11th hour and they just need someone to share that gospel moment with them so that they know how to act on what the Holy Spirit's been doing in their heart? God uses you all over that clock, but we tend to think the only people God uses are the ones that happen along at, at midnight. But all the time, in all of your life interactions, in your world, this is where the gospel happens. It doesn't happen here. It doesn't happen in a big tent revival. It doesn't happen in big, in big special events nearly as effectively as it happens when you just live your life and get your hair cut and go to work every day. So Peter says the new normal is not only does it matter how you live, and if you want peace, live a life that's blameless and spotless. He says God is patient for the lost And that's part of your deal, is that you live for the lost. So the next thing he says is this. He goes into this part starting at verse, uh, the second half of verse 15. Just as also our brother, our beloved brother Peter, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which is the untaught, unstable, distorted, which, I'm sorry, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of scriptures to their, uh, to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. Blah, that's a mouthful. What's he saying? His contemporary Paul had begun writing his letters the ones that make up scripture now. He probably wrote more letters than that, but maybe some of them were just not uh, necessary for all of history to be recorded. But Paul was writing letters addressing these things and these prophecies and helping the Jews re-understand life and their worldview uh, with Christ in mind. And there was some, some bad teaching coming out. There were some people that were distorting words for their own gain. Let me tell you something. Words mean things. Truth is not relative Truth is out there. Remember that old, uh, if you watch, used to watch the X-Files way back when, the truth is out there. There is truth and we pursue it, but we don't make up our own. And it's not okay to find your own truth. You can't make truth for yourself. It doesn't work. It works in nothing else in life. It certainly doesn't work with God. I can't make my own truth driving down the road and deciding which side of the stripe I want to drive on. It's my own truth. That car is going to pass right through me. Part of your life as a Christian, part of my life is discerning wisdom from foolishness. So how do we do that? Look at the next verse, 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. God says, know the Bible. He doesn't say, read the Bible. He doesn't say... Think about the Bible a little bit. He doesn't say, buy books that are about the Bible. He says, know the Bible. 
In Deuteronomy 6, it's a thing called the Shema. He tells Israel, he says, go out, take these scriptures and print them on your hearts. Tie them on your arm. Talk about them when you're walking down the road, when you're awake and when you're asleep. Imprint them on your children's hearts. He says, know the scriptures. And without knowing the scriptures, you cannot discern wisdom from foolishness. You can't give a defense for this hope that is in you, scriptures say. So we have to study the scriptures. Here's the deal. The Bible is not an ancient, irrelevant, inaccessible book unless you don't study it. Then it is. Just like any other book, but especially the Bible. We have to become students of the Bible. Now I say that, let me tell you that, that we want to put our money where our mouth is and in the year to come, you're going to have a lot more opportunity to do that at this church. Um, you're going to have more resources to help you know and understand how the Bible works. How do you use it? How do you study it? How do you, how, for those of you who teach and you're kind of at a different level in your understanding of Scripture, uh, how do you study and prepare to teach in a way that's relevant and effective and, and, and helps people discern wisdom from foolishness and, and, uh, and all that? So we're going to provide more resources for you in, in, the, in the year to come. Take advantage of them. So I want to leave you with this. Okay. So I grew up in the American dream, right? Uh, I grew up in the, and I had a great life. I really did. And by the way, my, my parents loved Christ. I, I kind of played and teased a little bit, but they, they loved Christ. They didn't live for material things. But it kind of, when you, I, I was looking through this photo album last week and I'm going, wow, this is hilarious. This is the American dream, man. This is like a, a Leave it to Beaver TV show, which was the music playing, by the way, for, for those of you who are under 70. Um, it just gets older and older, you know? Like, I refer to a, a TV show, and I go, oh my gosh, that was 15 years ago. All right, so I lived this American dream, grew up in the church, but here's the deal. I was always afraid to share my faith, okay? I was always afraid to tell people about Jesus, and here's why. It's not because I was embarrassed about Jesus. It's not because I didn't believe or I thought the story was stupid. It was because I had this horrible tension because I couldn't do it with a straight face. I couldn't tell them, hey, guy, your life is bad. Mine's good. Look at how I live it. Look at how the church lives it. Don't you want to do that? It, it's just, I felt like a liar. I mean, it was like in football. I could never get fired up by coaches who used war analogies. I'm like, this isn't war. We're going to drink Gatorade every three minutes. <laughs> Nobody's going to die when this is over. Well, it was just like that for me. There was so little difference between us and the world that we were supposed to save. There was so much solvable suffering. We talk about all the suffering in the world. Well, so much of it was solvable. You know, there's 2 million people in Broward County and there's 90 kids that are in the foster care system with special needs that need to be adopted. 2 million people and there's 90 kids. There's 40,000 people in the, in the eight churches that are doing Hope South Florida, 40,000 of us, and there's 90 kids that need to be adopted. Now, they're in very difficult situations, but I would look at all this and I'd go, why would anyone believe me when I said that following Jesus changed their life? Because it doesn't change ours or mine. Because I don't know that I was living in the new normal. Very few practical differences between Christians and non. Very similar divorce rate, very similar, similar charitable giving. We, we just have become so known for what we don't believe and what we don't do. Now, I'm not just kissing up here, but I don't believe that's true of this church. I don't believe that's true of the, of the churches involved in Hope South Florida. I don't believe that's true of a lot of churches, but it is true of a lot of others. 
And it's true of each one of us individually at any given time. So here's the deal. The hope for the world is the body of Christ. It's each of us as individual believers knit together by a common purpose to love people and to give ourselves up for them the way Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So while we're waiting for that great day when the trumpet sounds all once and for all, when Jesus comes back, We stay right with our God. We share our faith. We beware false and destructive messages in our lives. And that includes, by the way, the stuff you're sitting there and staring at on TV and hearing in the, you know, it just, I remember in in college, I had to quit watching MTV. I loved it. I had to quit watching it because I realized I was just getting darker. It was during the whole Gen X, Kurt Cobain, all that kind of stuff. And I was just getting darker and darker and more and more depressed. And I think it was because I was watching MTV five hours a day, you know, at midnight with my classmates sitting there watching it. So it goes for all that stuff. We stay right with our God. We share our faith. We, be, we beware uh, false destructive messages in our lives. And we study God's wisdom in Scripture. Because here's the deal with this. Dreams are, are really hard. You know, dreams are beautiful. Martin Luther King, I have a dream, right? And he was killed. And there's scores of people killed and abused trying to bring that dream true to reality. The interesting thing about the American dream is it's really, uh, it's really a pursuit. The dream is for the right to pursue, right? The pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's really what the dream is about. Let me tell you my dad's pursuit. The things I didn't tell you about that nice little story. I told you he was born in the Depression. My grandfather dropped out of a heart attack at 52 years old in debt as a blacksmith because he was fixing everybody's stuff and they didn't have any money left a house with a mortgage. My father was a sophomore in college, married to my mother who was a junior. He took on my grandma's mortgage. He paid off her house. He became an accountant instead of a civil engineer because the course schedule only worked with his full-time work schedule at a newspaper where he lost his finger in a stupid accident. And he was in the ROTC to help pay for college. And then he and my mother uh, went off to the army together. He made $80 a week or a month, his first job ever. They stayed in the attic and the first night they were there, the wallpaper fell down on their, themselves, and they just laughed about it. He was transferred from St. Louis because he wouldn't sign a bad audit for a big company. They transferred him to Miami, and they gave him a bunch of drug clients to try and get him to quit. So he resigned from there, and he started his own business with my mother, who's an educator. They started a school a few years after they started it, and it was going very well. A state senator whose child was there sued them for an accident that happened on the playground. It was going to wipe them out, and for a year and a half, my dad did nothing but work and fight that case until he got a summary judgment. And I remember him coming home exhausted. We won. He suffered his whole life with chronic osteoarthritis. I believe he struggled from severe depression and he was addicted to alcohol. And I remember at the end of his life, he used to joke and he used to say, life is a checklist. And when you check off the last thing, that's when you die. So here's the deal with dreams. Dreams are beautiful. The pursuit is very, very hard. So you better have the right dream. 
Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we ask even this day that you would draw us to you. That if, if we sit here this morning never having seen Jesus risen, that you would do that so that all these things we've heard and been taught would become real to us, would make sense because the man who proclaimed them conquered death like he said he would. If we've already seen this, Father, and we've been able to do this in a place of such wonderful freedom and equality and prosperity, we ask, Father, that you would show us, even in spite of that, this new normal that we're called to live, and that you would teach us, Father, how to live it each day, to die to ourselves, to take up our cross, to proclaim you with our lives, to always proclaim the gospel, and sometimes when necessary, to use words. We ask, Father, that you would enliven us to the new normal. In Jesus' name, amen.